0: Hello, Great Omen Artist listeners. It's Katie here, and just before we get into today's episode with the brilliant Magdalene O'Dundo, I want to let you know I have written a book which is out this September. The story of Art Without Men aims to retell art history with pioneering non male artists who spearheaded movements and redefined the canon. It is available to pre order now from Amazon, Waterstones, and more, and I have linked to the book in the show notes. But in this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewellery, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the past two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection, cast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. The brand was founded by Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time. Each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. Alighieri have just dropped the latest styles from their Autumn Winter 2022 collection, which explores the power of body language to express emotion in a world where words are not often enough. The newest drop from this collection is the Traveler's Path earrings. These hoops celebrate the magic of tourmaline, a gemstone for protection and grounding on all your adventures. Each stone is completely unique and tells its own story. The magical green tourmaline is juxtaposed with luminous pearls for maximum illumination. As a major hoop earring fan, I can't wait to wear this pair. Doubled up in one ear or as singles, these earrings will bring a little light to your spring and beyond. the full collection at alighieri.com. And just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most renowned living artists working in ceramics today, Magdalene Odundo. Born in Kenya and now living and working in the UK, where we are very excitingly recording today. Odondo produces ceramic objects filled with beauty and gracefulness, with their voluptuous forms and glittering surfaces. Created using a hand-coiled technique, Odondo's laboriously produced clay-based sculptures that range from red-orange to black are executed in an exquisite manner. Akin or reminiscent to the shape of a female body, she has said of her medium, I've always equated clay with the humanity that's within us. Fragile, like our bodies, it can tip over, you have it on its toes, but if you push just slightly on the wrong pivot, it will break your heart. Born in 1950, Odunda received her initial training as a graphic artist in Kenya before moving to the United Kingdom in 1971, where she enrolled on the foundation course at the Cambridge School of Art. In 1976, Odunda graduated in ceramics, photography and printmaking from the University for the Creative Arts and later completed her postgraduate studies at the RCA. In museum collections that range from the British Museum to the Brooklyn Museum, the V&A and the Met, Magdalene has exhibited across the globe. A recent favourite exhibition was her spectacular display at the Hepworth Wakefield, where she put her work in dialogue with myriad artworks and artefacts from across time and from across the globe. In 2019, she was appointed Chancellor of the University for Creative Arts and was made a Dame in the Queen's New Year's Honours in 2020. But the reason why we are speaking with Magdalene today at her studio in Farnham is because not only is she currently the subject of a major exhibition at the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge, but because she will also feature in this year's Venice Biennale, a show that will feature a staggering 180 women artists and that I can't wait to find out more about. Magdalene Adando, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you very much,
1: Katie. I'm doing well. I think with that introduction, I might as well just leave. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. There's there's nothing else to say.
0: (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So thank you so much. Firstly, I should add to the listeners that it has taken me two years of pestering you to get you on. And thank you so much. And for inviting us here to your incredible house. It's such a pleasure to be surrounded by so many pots and teapots and everything. And your work just Emanates and radiates such beauty, sensuality, and a sort of divineness. I went to go and see your uh, one of your works at David Zwerner yesterday in their exhibition Vessels where it's placed alongside a beautiful dangling Ruth Asala work. And it just glistened and held so much power. It's a small work, but its curves were utterly spellbinding, almost divine. And the spatters of colour shimmered every time I walked round and it sort of saw each angle. So I'd love to start off by asking you, how do you want people to feel in front of your work? Probably just as you've
1: just described, I take great pleasure in really listening to people like yourself and the rest of the world actually looking at the work and getting from the work whatever they feel that the work brings to them. It has never occurred to me to indoctrinate people as to how they should view or interpret my work. But I'm always interested to know how they feel about it. My hope has always been... That the viewer will decipher from the work a purposeful narrative that will help reveal many things to them of themselves when they encounter or are in proximity with with the work. The work is very visual, or I think that the work is very visual, but there is much more to it that demands more than just a gaze. One hopes that a meaningful dialogue is established between the work and the viewer and that an engagement is ensued that is practical, emotional, spiritual and thoughtful. For me, viewing is a visual ritual, but also an engagement in the rite of passage,
0: very specific to a vessel. Absolutely. I mean, even just yesterday, I mean, oftentimes I've seen your work. It's been sort of collectively. So a lot of your pots in a single place. But yesterday, just seeing one, it held so much power. I mean, also the curves of them accentuate everything that's around them as well. Thank you. And I think, you know, sort of seeing the work very recently
1: being seen in an environment that gives it space but also being viewed on a different level from what I call this engagement for the the work to actually be given time, for the viewer to have the space and time to look at the work and think a lot more about the work and what a vessel means. We're so used to picking up a cup and just drinking tea and not actually having time to think about the person who made it, why it was made, where it was made from. And ceramic for me offers making vessels and making three-dimensional forms, gives one the ability to actually bring in all these other forces within the central aspect of what a vessel is. It's got an inside and an outside. But for me, it's the idea of bringing people who are looking at the work from the outside, but actually bringing them into their work and really examining the inside and what the inside offers. It's very much like when you encounter a new person that you've never met, where hopefully one is mesmerized into wondering what the person is all about, who the person is from the inside. And for us not to make judgments of the exterior of a person, because we all dress up, we all embellish our beings so that we don't look like who we are, but give an impression of what everybody else wants to, or what we think people should make of us.
0: But I think that's such a beautiful way of saying it, because even, I mean, I should add that we're drinking from these amazing teacups in your house and actually even these are such beautiful vessels in themselves and how many people have drunk from them as well you know they have a story everything has a story and each made by a different person and each telling a different story
1: which is what making objects is all about yeah and I love that
0: and I'm fascinated also you know we're surrounded by probably centuries worth of teapots, teacups, everything. I mean, you were just showing with them earlier, candlesticks, I mean, everything. How do you like to interweave historical and contemporary ceramic practices from around the world into your practice as well?
1: I think being a maker and being an artist or being a ceramicist, by nature, none of us make work from a vacuum. We are very historically based and history is made immediately, but also in the past, centuries ago. But I think we base our work on the knowledge or what we are making has been informed by work made before. For me, I equate it with every other activity that we perform within the human world. If you're a surgeon, you don't just start opening up a body without having had a history of that surgery beforehand. So it's not just artists who have that, it's everything that we do. It is informed by a past. We make it at present and hopefully it informs the future.
0: Totally, I love this idea that this pot has just all these lives because you're the maker of making it and you've lived so many lives and seen so much and it sort of encompasses that. And I love the use of your hand, that touch in it as well. And, you know, like I said, with that work that I saw yesterday, just the splatters of sort of shimmeringness on it as well. You get a sense of the artist's hand on that as well.
1: Yeah, and the firing having finished it. Ceramics or, or, or pottery is actually made up of the notion of using a material that is clay, water... And fire, so it's you know it combines all the earth sciences and all the earth geologies and minerals, and I think that's why clay pottery ceramics has become one of the mediums that has become really f- fascinating, and many artists are using it instead of a lot of I don't know. I think I'm trying to say clay is one of the best materials. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it is. But there is totally this resurgence,
1: though. There is a resurgence. That's what I was trying to, you know, I was trying to find a word that encompasses that. I think it's a resurgence of clay, but it's the realisation that it's a material that has an expansiveness that all the other materials don't have. Clay is attractive because of its materiality. It's pliable. It's intriguing. It's malleable, it has all sorts of facets, you know from being dust it can be made into a lump of clay and from that lump of clay you can mould something with it but from other materials where that clay came from you can get minerals that then make a coating or a glaze that embellish that particular piece that you've made. And when you put it in a fire, it actually strengthens it and modifies it and makes it into ceramics. So clay is pliable when it's not fired, but after it's fired, it then becomes this object that has almost eternity. It lives on forever and ever. It's fragile too because pots can crack and can break, but they still exist. Most of the time, I was trying to think, but archaeologists find they can tell a lot about the history of human beings by just having a shard of pottery that tells so much about human beings.
0: That's totally incredible. No, absolutely. But I love this idea of it being dust to this hardy, tangible thing, and then something like that that lives... On till eternity and the versatility of clay and what the potentials of it as well but I'm fascinated by this idea that you know I mean like I said that that quote I said in the introduction about equating clay with humanity that's within us it's fragile like our bodies I mean what do you think is the relationship between ceramics and the human body? I mean first of all
1: to complete that earlier sentence the fact that this dust, this clay is accessible and we exist on earth. You know, the earth is a mass of earth and water and fire lurking somewhere, in you know, live or dormant within volcanoes, is, is basically what we are embodied in, in that cycle of clay. And you, you feel, you know, sort of when you're using the material, you feel as if you're part of This earth, it's not something that has been manufactured, that is unique to any discovery. It is there. All we need to do is to use it and respect it and to respect the sources that we found it from. But the notion of thinking of it in terms of humanity, in terms of a vessel, in terms of a human being... It's not a a, a new thinking, it's something that is known over centuries and particularly in terms of religious. If you think of verses and quotes that you can get from uh, the Bible, for instance, where the potter or the maker is mentioned, and the idea that... A potter is a maker who molds these intriguing vessels. And a lot of people who believe in the Bible have equated the notion of a potter being a god who's created, who's taken this dust and molded it into an Adam and and then yeah. the Adam has produced the rest of us, yeah. I don't confess to being an expert of the Bible, but I got you know sort of it. It says there, God formed and modelled human of dust of the ground out of clay. We are, in a literal sense, pottery. God apparently <laughs> physically shaped Adam from the clay of the earth and breathed life into him. So they say. We're all humans, a word that is akin to humus, meaning earth or clay. And apparently, the Apostle Paul seemingly referred to bodies as jars of clay. I mean, it says that. So it must be somewhere. It must be written
0: somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure. Just get off Google. (laughs) Wikipedia. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That reliable source. What a sort of beautiful metaphor for the world, because also, when you think about Earth, it's Earth as a vessel. Exactly,
1: exactly. The universe and the planets are a vessel. Yeah. I think that's why the vessel, that's why making it does something to, to one's whole being. I just can't separate the whole being of a person that is me from the making of the clay. And I cannot find a vocabulary in which I can couch how it is to feel to be a maker working with clay. I mean, it's so much easier to just be in the studio and produce that work and put it out there for people to try and decipher what it is you are thinking.
0: Yeah. Totally,
1: but the, the 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 vessels or any jars or any uh, three dimensional work made out of clay has this this aspect of drawing people to much more than just the object being there. But ceramics and clay pots have been used for so many different purposes. They've been used as functional utilitarian pieces to sustain us, you know, we feed from them and we enrich our own lives through handling them and using them without, I I just can't imagine a world without pots and pans made out of clay. Mm. Um, but then, you know, sort of, they've been used for so many other rites of passage. A lot of societies, particularly in Africa and perhaps in the southwest coast of America, uh, pots were all, always associated as part and parcel of the travel of a human being's life. They were used in the naming ceremonies and then at weddings and then for rites of passage at funerals, but they were also used as healers, pieces that mediated a healing process because they would be used for storing medicinal herbs and stuff like that. When you think about it, a tomb is really a vessel made out of clay. And we've come, well, the Bible says we've come from there. (laughs) We'll end up there. Yeah. But. um, It comes full
0: circle. It comes full circle. circle.
1: In in, in some societies, in fact, in the society that my parents and I come from, very important people were buried in, in two chambers of a burial tomb. They would be buried, seated in one half of the tomb or the grave. And then the other half would be a series of pots, clay pots, made for them to use in the afterworld. Mm. And they wouldn't go hungry. Mm. And they would just not only be fed, but also it's a spiritual manifestation of those who are living who were satisfied that they had sent that person in the afterworld, completely equipped with everything that they needed to sustain them for however many lives one had after that. And that's why sort of reading and researching other cultures that use art and objects in various manifestation is, is an interest to me.
0: Yeah, I love this idea that these vessels and these pots chart the trajectory of our lives, but also the lives lived before our lives and the lives lived yes. afterwards. Yes, yes. They'll always be there. They will always be there. And we won't. We're actually the kind of ephemeral creatures and pots are the sort of sturdy, tangible ones who will always be there.
1: I think so. And you'll always find that pots or ceramics tells the history of human beings because the archaeologists will always use it. The ethnographers will always use those to find out what happened, what people ate. I mean, if you go to any museum in any country, including Stonehenge, they always have a pot somewhere, yeah. any museum has. And that's because it, does, it has this narrative of what, what a human being is.
0: Absolutely, but also just the lives lived within that part yeah. as well. Yeah. That's what what you were saying earlier. Like it's actually all about the inside of it. It is, and that I think the inside informs the outside. Yes, which is totally like us humans and the world as well. Yes, and I hope I wish we would
1: listen to each <laughs> <laughs> listen to the parts a lot more and listen to each other a lot more. I agree. Uh, but I well, agree. You know, sort of. I think the the One of the greatest things if you travel the world over is that every little museum or every large museum will have ceramics within their collection. Because it's part of every single culture in the world. It is, it is. And there's a universality to ceramics that is really understood by every cultural society that exists on earth. If you take a a pot from Peru and took it to East Mongolia and then took it to uh, a village in Western Kenya in Busia, the pot will be a pot and yeah. it will be recognised by everybody in those cultures that I've mentioned as a vessel, as a container. And beyond that, what the container is used for can become a metaphor for those people mm. from those society to imagine what that other society used that particular piece
0: of work for but also the fact that pots are just continuously practical objects at the end of the day and they are just
1: pots yes, yes. A we pot all is need to drink and we all need <laughs> to eat yeah <laughs> but it's it's more than a pot when i was teaching years ago i used to love just taking uh, an image of a work from one society and juxtaposing it with another society and asking students to tell me where they came from. Yeah. You know, if they'd been through art history, quite often they would say probably, oh, you know, South America or Africa. And, you know, I'd say, well, that's actually early German Japanese. It's that means of being able to understand what a vessel is that intrigues me much more than if you look at paintings. Paintings tend to have a provenance that is so specific. You know, you can actually tell that an iconography is probably Russian or Ethiopian, whereas with a jar, with a lovely pot from the Kerma in, in northern Sudan or... It could be Egyptian. Was it made by Nubians or was it made by... You know, there's a similarity in them. And the firings sometimes, particularly old traditional firings, can render the pieces to have the similarity, you know, because you're painting with slips Mm. and the painting is graphic rather than pictorial, but when it's pictorial, it can tell you where the pot was made, so it has a narrative in that sense as
0: well. But that, that's fascinating. You, you mentioned the graphics as well, because obviously so many pots have graphics on them, but so many don't as well. But I'm fascinated because you initially studied graphics in your youth. And I'm fascinated how you actually, because you were obviously born in Kenya, you studied there, then you came to the UK. How did you actually become interested in pottery? Was this something that you had a fascination with from your youth? I'm fascinated to know as well. <laughs>
1: Tell me, I let's go back. <laughs> I can't think, um, you've got me there. No, I, I, I actually didn't, didn't make parts. I had a very British colonial uh, upbringing and, and teaching because I grew up in a colonial Kenya. So uh, I think crafts were made by people who didn't have a hope and a chance to actually have an academic uh, education. But it was also, they, they were introduced in colonial days as the only means that the natives were capable of achieving and the limit to our fascination and, and education. So when those of us who are the first generation post-independence, our parents obviously did not want us to be engaged in the minor arts because we were being educated to take office in other <laughs> areas. <laughs> Goodness. which some of us never achieved. <laughs> but it really was rudimentary in terms of a very apartheid system in colonial days. So I didn't do pottery. I did some art, probably as an extra supporting subject, and quite often to keep me out of trouble. <laughs> it's true. This will be a good distraction it's, for you. It's, it's true. Um but I think I always wanted to be involved in art. And so when I finished my A-level, the headmistress suggested I went straight into an apprenticeship. And that's how I ended up with an advertising agency.
0: Oh wow! But it's
1: the only art perhaps I thought of because I was painting by then. So it was quite fascinating to be working on posters. But I came to this country then to pursue that, to elevate my fancies of being a, a commercial artist. I'd also worked in neon design manufacturing. Wow. But on Foundation course in Cambridge, I suddenly had one of the op- options on, on Foundation was to go into the ceramics department. Mm. And I think I fell in love with it, and I fell in love with the teacher as well. She was absolutely a wonderful teacher who'd been brought up in Zimbabwe as it happened. She really introduced me to clay, And from then on, I went on to Farnham and did ceramics, printmaking, and photography. Then worked at the Commonwealth Institute, and then went to the Royal College. And by the time I finished at the Royal College, I had settled on wanting to become engaged in in a studio practice. And that's what I've done since. (laughs)
0: I mean, you honed this such, I mean, you have such a sort of distinctive style. And I'm aware that sort of it was at the RCA that you kind of developed this. I mean, I'm thinking of something like vase from 1982, this kind of signature asymmetrical pot with a smooth finish. And this is a red work. Tell me about your process of this, because obviously your pots do range from these incredibly smooth pots, but then it can, there can also be like these kind of spine-like spikiness to them. I mean, it's just profound, the kind of different ways in which you execute them. I actually have a very simple method. It's a very traditional
1: method, but, you know, I've made it my own by combining all the different techniques that I've learned from uh, various parts that I've been to. I spent time in Nigeria learning, and then I went back to Kenya and looked at the pottery of Western Kenya and picked up the different techniques. And what was fascinating is... All these traditional potteries, whether it was in Africa or in Asia or South America or New Mexico, the fact that they were hand-building using a type of coil technique, they all had variations. And it's very much like imagining people painting on caves. And the cave paintings have a similarity, but all have variations of how they arrived there. But the technique that I use is very close to actually throwing because you start with a lump of clay and then you put a hole in the middle of the clay and you pull up. And when you're throwing, you have a wheel that's helping you to maneuver the clay with water and pull it up to make a vessel, where with the hand-building technique I use, you start with a lump of clay, but you pull the clay out from the inside to build the walls, forming a hollow, which, after arriving at a certain height, you start adding lumps of clay as coils, but the shorter of it... Is that it's a very sculptural way of forming the work. And you have this cylinder that you work with. Then you take your tools and you start pushing it from the inside to inform the outside form. You then close the outside form and you pull it back inside. You form a neck or you start extemporizing. And what I've done is start enjoying the sculpting aspect of the work after I've got this shell and what I call a canvas
0: of a shape. They all have so many different elements to them. And just the fact that, I mean, they all have their kind of own personality, their own colours, their own sort of shimmers. I mean, what sort of then happens sort of from there then into the firing process? Because I mean, am I right in thinking this is where you decide on the colour of them?
1: The is very much decided by the fact that I chose to work with with a red clay. Okay. I deliberately chose to work with red clay because it has the density in colour to it. It's also less powdery, but also red earth clay is clay that has been been used for terracotta's, for busts, for everything. Perhaps because it's easily available. Whereas with other clays, you have to actually form them. With porcelain, you have to dig further. By nature, my work was not compatible with high firings. But working with that earthy clay, you can manipulate it, work it with your fingers. And it doesn't dry as quickly as uh, some stonewares or some porcelains. It just is more earthy to me. I'm sure those people who work in porcelain will disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to retain this terracotta aspect, this, this bust-like, this earthy aspect of the work because much of my inspiration is to do with stances that human beings make. It's mm. to do with extracting information from movement, dance, gestures, spaces between people, you know, sort of how people communicate, how people stand, you know, that's why they have all these sort of spines that you feel when you're watching a dancer or an acrobat. The way they disform or deconstruct their bodies to reach and to, you know literally work on their toes or bend their backs backward and forward, leaping from one end of a trapeze to the other. And for the viewer, when you're watching, you are mesmerized by that movement, by that curvature in their bodies. If you watch fashion shows, you watch the models walking on the catwalks, it's not the models you're looking up it's the stances they make. And that's why they're used as models. That's where the word comes from. And the modeling is to do with stances. With The vessel is to do with a stance, how we relate, how we eat from them, how we look at them. And so this obsession with having a surface that is so smooth. is also to do with the bodies without clothes. The body is so smooth. And the skin is, is very porous. It's breathing, and I want my parts to breathe. I want my parts to be potent, to, to hold, to contain and then contain whatever it is we want to. I mean, I can start being very spiritual and philosophical about the work because I am so engaged in that aspect of it so the additions are to embellish the body to make them more
0: animated and to make them more engaging I think. Completely and but even just me being a body being confronted with these works as well and just the fact that it also makes me feel what it is like to inhabit a body as well. Like these spikes, it kind of makes me feel about the knots that I have in my body as well. Like there's a lot of internality as well as this smoothness. We also feel these knots. Yes. And if you've
1: ever had a massage and you actually talk to the person who's doing the massage, they're very interested in how they relate to their hands onto the moving body. Yes. Although your body is supposed to be static when they are working it because they're feeling those nodules that are in in the body. They're taking away, they're trying to extract those uh, knots mm. that are afflicting you. And the tension <laughs> like, as well. The, yeah. And the tension. And I think with much of my work, and I still am seeking that, I'm seeking to to be able to retain this tension from the base from the beginning close it up open it up and let it breathe and then you know the next person who comes has to feel the, the same kind of feeling it's an aspiration i have that when people are looking at the work they have a an emotional sensation through their body through the parts. They're looking at the pieces, but they're actually looking at their own bodies.
0: And what about this, I mean, you mentioned earlier this aspect of spirituality with the work as well.
1: When I say that, I don't mean a religious format in which you think about the parts, although there is a lot of religious manifestation and quotes. I don't mean that, but I think a vessel is capable of taking you deep down almost from the, the thinking aspect to the soul. It makes you want to really have emotion. But it also is spiritual in, in a religious manner because parts and vessels have been used. They're ritualistic objects. They're ritualistic objects. They've been used for rites of passages. It's a chalice that you lift up and for centuries, it's been used to pass on other things like food, water, to to be shared. But they are objects that are used for migration, as mediation, for moving from one place to the other. At one stage, you know, you showed your wealth by how many Chinese cobalt pieces you had, and every stately home was... Uh, transporting pots from China to um, to show
0: your wealth. And that's how still life painting was also kind of executed as well. People would paint these pots to sort of show their status. Yeah, some of the best Painters like
1: Morandi painted wonderful, yeah, yeah, uh, still just, lives and mm. in, in with ceramics.
0: But I'm fascinated. Obviously, your fantastic exhibition at Hepworth Wakefield a few years ago brought together so many of your works and then put them in conversation with, you know, Degas' ballet girls. It put them in conversation with contemporary art, with Tudor paintings. All these world of objects and artifacts in one, and I'm. So looking forward to seeing your work at Venice this year. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about the work that you've made to Venice. I've selected, I think it's five pieces.
1: I hope that the five pieces will speak about vessels in a much more perhaps formal and informal way. And also I think that the pieces that I feel will introduce people to my work in that setting, I also think they have this very visual, sculptural quality to them, and they will withstand the mass of people that will be at Venice. And I hope they're amazed. I feel that they will sit comfortably. They will bridge the gap between all the paintings and all the other works. And I think they will complement the historical Venice itself because Venice is somewhere where there was a lot of trade and a lot of trade that involved vessels and pottery. And I feel it is time, it is time that the work got there and
0: embellished the whole Venice as well. (laughs) Absolutely. Magdalene Lundo, thank you so much for speaking with me this afternoon. It has been the most enriching conversation, but we do have one more question for you. If there was a woman artist from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them?
1: There are actually a couple of women that I would really love to have had a long conversation and perhaps work alongside them. One of them is a, a wonderful lady. I just met very shortly in New Mexico called Christine McHorse. She was exactly the same age as me. She tragically died last year from COVID. Clay in her hands was just absolutely amazing. And she worked very much on the cutting edge of Pueblo pottery and contemporary pottery and made forms that were very enclosed but they were very human you know I was hoping to go and work with her and I felt that she was a conduit to knowing Pueblo pottery and Pueblo people better and we had planned to meet so I would love to sort of if I could be with her and ask her where her work was going. The other lady I think who is so unknown is a Kenyan lady called Rosemary Karuga who, funny enough, when I look back at my life and my childhood, will have introduced me to art. She was an incredible, incredible woman. She was the first woman to be trained at Makerere University. I think I must have been about 10 or 11. We had these classes where she brought in bark cloth and showed us how to use colour, and then she made these figures. And I just have this almost a dreamlike visual image of her making these figures from clay completely forgot about it went on with my life and only recently started thinking of her but she got recognized at last by the National Museum of Kenya but she too died last year so I lost two people that I would have loved to have had a conversation with Magdalena Dundo thank you so much for coming on the podcast today Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Not sure why I was putting you off before. but
0: <laughs> two, I years, think I in, two years! <laughs>
1: I was intimidated too much. <laughs> oh. But thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a, a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The Great Women Artists Podcast with the sensational Magdalene Adundo. This was such an incredible insight into her career and I can't wait to see her work at the Venice Biennale. Thank you so much to my sound editor, Nardis Manelic, and research assistant, Biba Ruji. And of course, thank you so much for listening to The Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.